we should be recording check check levels check all right welcome back to rt audio today we have an exciting episode uh we have a very interesting individual with us today named john strupat wow john is a retired rt um, he is a clinical or a previous clinical research uh, experience at anesthesia or with anesthesia rather at the University of Western. Mm-hmm. Um, John, you have a degree in biology and physics, as I understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've had some experience, 12 years experience working at Trudell Medical, which is a local company here in London. Right. Um, there you were a manager of electronic product development. Is that correct? Yes. Awesome. And you also have your own business, JST Limited, which is specializing in electronic products and development of medical and industrial products. All good, yes. That is an impressive <laughs> uh, rap sheet there, John. Um, we also have a guest uh, host with us today. Right. Yvonne Drasovian yeah. is uh, with us today, and she's kind of helped set this relationship up. So, Yvonne, welcome. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm, uh, looking forward to this conversation. I am too. Yes. Um, Let's jump right in. Um, John, thanks first off for being here today. You're welcome. Uh, You have had a interesting couple of weeks as I understand. Mm. Bad things are happening around the world and um, I hope I have something that may help that but let's talk about that and see what people think. That's, um, yes, unfortunately, we're all aware of the COVID-19 pandemic that is now, um, you know, released by the World Health Organization. This is something that has raised a lot of concerns for individuals, especially people in healthcare. And as respiratory therapists, this is something that is concerning for us. Mm -hmm. Um, Understanding that how these individuals are getting sick and understanding the progression of the illness uh, this could be very, very taxing on our resources in acute care settings. And issues with trying to allocate proper care with ventilation practices for these patients is of the utmost importance. Um, and this kind of begged the question to me, is how are our resources allocated and do we have enough? Mm-hmm. Um, and you have an interesting product that I believe you have worked with or developed over a number of years that may be able to help a lot of people in a situation like this? We'll find out soon, I think, or I hope it gets uh, uh, (coughs) exposed for people to look at it and make that decision, but all I can do is to throw it out there and say, uh, this is where I've got on the development of a product for this purpose. Right. So I want to say, Something RTs are going to find this very interesting. This ventilator is not meant for use by RTs. Okay. This is the. This is something that fits in between. We've used all the capacity the hospital has. We've used all the extra ventilators, and nothing. Right. It's a spot in there, which we're hearing a little bit about now in the news in Italy that they are making decisions to say we have, we have very, very few resources and we have too many patients, somebody gets to decide which of those patients match those resources. Right. So this is a, uh, let's use the title pandemic ventilator to distinguish it from other things, from transport ventilators, from automatic resuscitators, from normal hospital ventilators or OR ventilators. This is purpose specific to as much as possible operate without trained operators 
Okay. Yeah. So I, I, just just so we're um, more clear, a little bit more yes. clear on that. So <laughs> so we run out of resources in terms of respiratory therapists to yep. ventilate patients yep. in acute care settings. What level of training do you expect people users to have? Okay. Are we talking about someone who has <coughs> basic medical training or someone who doesn't know anything about healthcare could use this product? Okay, well, I'm going to read from the, the script here that, that my connection with getting involved in this project was driven by uh, well, uh, an organization from the U.S. called Health and Human Services, and it's a gargantuan oversight and funding uh, organization in Washington so they they proposed actually this just what we're talking about here in 2006 and they were looking for proposals from everywhere initially everywhere but then immediately after that everywhere in the US to provide let's call it a pandemic ventilator and there's one of their specific um, requirements was for use by untrained or minimally trained operators. Now how scary is that? So this yeah. is last resort. This is, yeah. maybe you've got an RT who can come in and look at a bunch of people and you hope you do and then you have other people who are just off the street, relatives, somebody, God, I don't want to say students don't know anything but just anything on the curve down to no training. Which is yeah. very, very, uh, maybe impossible, but this, that was their target. So right. then they specified what they thought it would take to make that happen. And they, um, in all the information I was able to find, that's more than 10 years ago, <coughs> um, they would never identify who the people were who were involved in um, uh, coming up with these specifications. But I'm used to reading a lot of technical documents, so they absolutely had to be emergency physicians, anesthesiologists, and somebody who had done some medical device manufacturing. It's, it's still, it's something that's never been done before. Yeah. Um, and it's a very, uh, well, well, now we've got the opportunity. The situation appears to be here yeah. to say, if you could do that, is that better than uh, a resuscitation bag? Right where somebody can do something for five minutes and then they're, they're exhausted. I mean, right. it's just not possible. If you don't have resources that we're used to having uh, in the hospital and maybe with a stretch into home care or ambulance serv or paramedic services, is there's a whole area in the middle there where you may end up, the numbers could be, if worst case is that the numbers could be quite substantial, where you have, right. you have no equipment, you have the trained people are not available, the ICU bids are not available. So as early as last night, you, on all the news networks, people are talking about, well, we can foresee opening up auditorium spaces, uh, hockey arenas, yeah. all these things to put people. Well, those are not people who are sitting sitting around drinking coffee with a temperature, like you're talking about. Very sick people. Yeah. 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 So without more than that, that's just a place to hide people until they expire so right so um, I'll jump think, ahead yeah, a little bit. I think that is the reality that we've in, in Ontario and I know across Canada we've been asked to kind of um, 
dampen the curve that we're starting to see mm -hmm. on how quickly this could start spreading. Yes. And uh, something like this potentially may deal with the, the, the way that this is going to trickle down and fall out. So yes. um, understanding that this is designed for simplicity, correct? Yes, I think um, you guys, more than my time as an RT, people are talk about standard of care within the healthcare, right? Okay, and that always means things you should be doing as of 2020, the things you did in 2015 are not good enough anymore, right. and that's a, what's the term, medical legal issue, that if you're not doing what the standard of care is for 2020, then the hospital's at risk, you're at right. risk from something you should have done. Maintaining okay. evidence-based care. Okay, in this situation, that doesn't apply. Okay. So I, what I'm describing to you is the standard of care from the early 1970s. Okay. That's what we're talking about. With, and that fits in with simplicity. Right. Ventilators from 1970 were primitive. Some of them depended on, the patient could only be put on some of those ventilators if they were, had um, paralytic drugs. Okay. Because they didn't have even a cyst. They were just controlled. Yeah. It ventilated and that was what yeah. you got. Okay. So we're, we're a big step above that, but many of the features that RTs are use and the students you'll be teaching RTs about are not going to happen. It's not going to be possible and it's not because it's not going to be possible for a minimally trained operator to figure out what the heck should I do with that knob. So <laughs> so let's if, if possible John can we break this down mm, a little bit. Let's um, try. This pandemic <coughs> ventilator that you've uh, designed it is with minds of simplicity um, we still have to manage inspiration, expiration, a rate, um, oxygenation. Yes. How is that possible if we're not having some sort of understanding about how those respiratory mechanics work and using uh, technology now to take over drive and muscle function from uh, a patient? Excellent question. So yeah, now I'm with RTs because nobody else is asking me this question. So, um, how do I jump into this one? What I have, what I have here, and I brought with me, is a proof of concept prototype for the core flow generating aspect of this ventilator. So it will produce uh, eighty or ninety liters a minute at low pressure. That pressure that'll go down to say forty or fifty liters a minute at one hundred centimeters of water. So that. So. That's capable of ventilating yeah. just about anybody that can, but it's alive, like yeah. still alive. Um, the other issues, what was envisioned by the Health and Human Services, and I'm hoping if we had a group of people here, we could talk about more, is to say, you have to realize what you've got to work with and then what potentially can make this easier to operate. So what I envision is, is think about your washing machine. You've got, you've got a control that's got sizes of patients basically. Right. Very limited choices. You've got a pulse oximeter. You've got an end tidal CO2 device in the airway or near the airway and the ventilator is going to say Basically, what's the optimum starting position? 
you've dialed in a medium-sized adult. So the ventilator starts at the v tidal volume and, and uh, rate that matches that, that we all learn about, and then uh, the feedback from the pulse oximeter and the end tidal CO2 sensor um, then um, could make slight changes in a few things. You know, we have, there's a there's freedom for a lot of optimization here with uh, PEEP or, I mean, the same machine could deliver CPAP, BiPAP at that kind of flow rate, like it is possible. For non-invasive For non-invasive, I think it's possible. I mean, this is all last resort stuff. Right, it's yeah. not optimal, yes, but it's not possible. Absolutely. But we're talking, if we're talking about intubated people and ventilating them, then you've only got that to work with. You've only got... Right. What are you going to do with the oxygen? In many cases, it's just going to be, it's going to use, you're going to, you're going to apply the maximum oxygen and see if you can titrate it down right. automatically. Um, they can't picture doing blood gases. This is not going to happen. No. Right. But you could technically train the operator to watch those two numbers, the oxygen and the uh, CO2, and just make slight adjustments. Um, Based on that, it is it yes, that, yeah. Last resort, but it also is in terms of computing power to say you all you're going to make certain sort of responses to the CO2 is too low. Well, we're going to slow down the ventilation, reduce the tidal volume, do something with the flow pattern. I mean, that's the part of. Uh, so you're thinking uh, this would be part of the ventilators. Yes, the control mechanism of it. So this is a microprocessed control uh, device then? It's not right now. Okay. But it ha but will have to be. Have to yeah. do what we talk about, it'll have to be. Okay. I mean, I have three three basic settings I can show you just simply. Yeah. That sort so of matches. We can find an app for it. Hmm? We can find an app for it. An app for it, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. with your background with the electronic product, well, the development, this, yeah. this so is I'm, something that you must be I'm in your trying not house. to use some of the terminology I'm familiar with that doesn't, that most RTs are not going to follow, but you've hit, it's basically computer control. Right. And it's not from your laptop or a cell phone. This is a box that it only, it's the ventilator control box, and that's all it does. And did I understand you correctly that you say it could be adaptive? So you said it could the be. Well, that it has, would have to be for. If you have that feedback, you have a pulse yeah. oximeter, and mm -hmm. that is the only way this could work. Right, because the training and the individuals running that would maybe not have that information or be able to understand how to exactly. manipulate those parameters to that's that. So, so that's why that adaptability. When I the very, very few very times I've talked about this to RTs, they go, "Well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do?" Yeah. Well, th don't think of it that way. Think of you're not You'll available. Be busy. You'll be busy enough. Yeah, <laughs> like maybe you could come around and see. This is going to sound quite creepy. Is the, the ventilator is running, the patient's died. Yeah. It's just going to keep going. Right. It may make an alarm. Like there's always, definitely you want to say um, some sort of general purpose indication. And that could also, see now if, if you have more, if you have enough time, you can do all the other things. Send a text message, send a, an email, all that stuff. Go and look at ventilator. 327 located over there and wow you could <coughs> but depends how much time we've got to make this all happen so yeah. that's there's a lot of possibility then there are. by the sounds of it so yeah yeah it's a, a good start my, my brain just went somewhere else completely but even that technology that you're speaking of there yeah. would lend itself very well to some of our ventilators currently in use that uh, are not pandemic well, um, yeah, those absolutely but now you're talking I know, I'm here's not the, talking about no, no. yes. <laughs> Here's the other, big, the other big killer here, that 
because of my experience at Trudeau Medical, where we manufactured devices for the U.S. market, the FDA is the <coughs> be-all and end-all for permission to market in the U.S. And with the ventilators that you have in your lab and use every day in hospitals, they are, along with, uh, I think it's still called Health Canada, um, they are approving what your device does. And medicine is conservative, so if somebody says, I want it to do this, first of all, they would say, that's a great idea, now prove to us it works right. 100.000 time. Every time, that's the legal issue that is always thrown in with what the FDA is doing. Can somebody hack it? Can some guy, some, as Trump would say, a 400-pound guy in his bedroom, hack into that and start making adjustments (laughs) on the ventilator? So it's all, but with, and they were going to be involved 10 years ago. That was, that was one of the things pointed out by the, by the group that was specifying how this, um, they called it a mass casualty ventilator would work, is that the FDA would have to be involved. And because it was 10 years ago, there was no mass casualty. It was all, we'd like to do this. We'd like to build these yeah. things. We'd like to stockpile Start them to be ready. Yeah. Well, now this in Italy, that this, yeah, you could have been shipping these to Italy last week or a couple of weeks ago. Let's so the FDA is going to have to be off to the side and say, guys, this is now public. Um, this is now a public safety issue. In the States, it may be a homeland security issue. There's a bunch of people that are not typical health organizations uh, who are saying this is, has to be separate, treated separately from the way you would do for a new um, neonatal new ventilator or a monitor or something. Assuming so. Health Canada, you move forward and Health Canada approves this, yes. um, how fast do you think someone could manufacture? hundred uh, ventilators like this. Well, my part in my approach in designing this was so that it could be manufactured quickly. So saying that, we've also now we've, because I'm talking to RTs, you have, you've now talked about the part of it that's not finished. Okay, so that there's a development aspect, but the world could use the same end product. Right. So if people, as I've said, yesterday in my interview, I, anybody in the world can have this. You can, I will tell you everything I've done and how it was done and where to get the parts for it. So I'm hoping that um, uh, in software you'd say it's an open source project. Well, I, I don't think I want to say that completely because a couple of different reasons, but uh, I think it could happen very quickly because you okay. could have, medic- you want medical device manufacturers if possible that's not possible, then you can have other types of people who are already used to manufacturing electronic products and come up with ways of testing it and all that sort of thing. So, uh, And I imagine cost has to be considered, right? So a normal ventilator is not a cheap piece of equipment or a resource for a hospital to purchase or right. even stockpile. This, this right. would have to be substantially much more obtainable, affordable for those um, you know, practices. That's a very timely question. So I'll, let me throw out something. You'll find this very interesting. The original target for the human health and services 10 years ago was 2000 bucks. Okay. And all the ventilator companies said, whoa, <laughs> you're now talking about adding features to something that we already make, like a very simple ventilator. You're talking about adding features. We're already selling that for 5000 yeah. bucks. 
Okay, so here's the scary part. So being the um, persistent character I am, and a Canadian, you get to talk to people that I don't think others would that would speak to you. So I'm talking to ventilator companies in Europe, which I won't put a name to, sure, but you yeah. know who they are. Yeah. I'm talking to the manager of product development. I'm talking to people at the biggest American companies. And they're saying, we don't want to do this. We don't want to submit a proposal to do this. We don't want anybody else to win the award to do this. This is 10 years ago. Right. So there's pushback right away from the people that you would think would want to take part. Because it, it yeah. they were all worried about destroying the lower end of their market. Like it would, this is nothing to do with the 30,000 or 40, I don't know what a high-end ventilator is worth now. In that must be in that range. We're talking about a 1,000 or a 500. Yeah. I'm I think the cost of it could be $500. Now that's without some manufacturing, without some yeah. quality assurance and stuff. Hmm. But who cares what, in some ways, who cares what it is? I agree. Yeah. Yeah. But just to go back to the product itself, so yes. you mentioned that it's not really a finished product right. yet. What does it need to be finished? If we, uh, we could ventilate somebody who had um, a neuromuscular problem right now with it. Okay. Yeah. A safely. So it sounds like a controlled yeah. mechanical ventilator it has right no, now. It has no... It will not react to patient it's effort because I haven't. There's no control electronics to do that. It will not control um, peep levels automatically because I don't have that built into mm -hmm. it. But all that stuff is done. You've seen all those things in other products. Like it's just right. It's just well, we know how to do to that. Have. We know how to do that. Yeah. Yes. So that would be the that would be the immense advantage of a of a ventilator existing ventilator company to say well, okay. We've done a whole bunch of those things. We know how to do that really quickly and cheaply. A peep, a peep, the exhalation valve assembly, the peep valve. Uh, the people have been making pulse oximeters for a long time, uh, entitled CO2. And all those com the companies that build those sell the, will sell those two as a, um, a module at very low cost if it's high volume. So I'm... With what we're doing here and what I did yesterday with CBC, I'm sort of waving the flag saying, if anybody's interested, like, let's talk yeah. and... Uh, I would hope that... Um, I would think governments would need to jump in and say, okay, this is a big deal for us and it's probably a big deal for the rest of the world. And that's, yeah, that's... That could be a dumb idea, so I'm not, that's, I'm, you know, <laughs> yeah. But it, it's an I, idea, right? And uh, any new idea should be investigated and, and um, worked with. And I think we are facing difficult times when we should look at outside or think outside the box. And I think we would honestly be naive if we didn't think this was going to happen again. Like history has yes. shown to repeat itself yes. and we're not in a unique situation where this will be the one-off. There will be right. another uh, pandemic and likely you have, in all of our yes. careers again. And my question, I guess, is um, in our local lens or in the province, there's ventilator equipment pools. And um, from what I understand, and I'm not an authority or an expert on this, but there, there's the, I think the LIN has like a database of where ventilators are allocated to in certain hospitals. Right. And let's say a pandemic or a, you know, a, an outbreak happened in a certain area, they could move ventilators and source that area. Where do, you see, this, where do you see this fitting in? Uh, I'll answer that by saying 
I discovered for the first time just yesterday that there was a document dated 2019 with the actual number. So we're talking, I hope I have that right, around 250 ventilators for all of Ontario. Wow. And 40 or 50 are neonatal and uh, pediatric ventilators. So we're down below 200. And that's these, all there these are. were pandemic ventilators? No. Or was this the ventilator equipment pool? This is an equipment pool right. set aside that the Ontario government is saying this is our stockpile of spare ventilators. It'd be interesting, I'd never seen this before yesterday, but it'd be interesting to know, are the hospitals, have they been using those? And just saying, well, it's a stockpile, but we, we pull them out once in a while. Because right. it's just a room, right? One ventilator is down, let's yeah. pull from here so Why we not can use maintain that? care. Yeah. And I, I, I'll throw that out, that might be possible. Or it may be under some sort of high security thing. So uh, the document I read yesterday said that um, for example, Stratford was under max, right up to 100% with some SARS patients, I think, in 2003. So then now they have a procedure where the CEO of the hospital has to sign a document, send it off to the somebody in the Ontario government who says, yes, if you want a ventilator, it's at this location somewhere, transport it to your hospital. That's a really good thing right. for localized problems, and it works really well for see a chemical spill or something, people get exposed to chlorine gas or something, and that location needs a half of the stockpile. It doesn't work at all for a situation where this is just spread evenly across Ontario, because they're gone in an instant. And you're not going to get them off. You, you're the CEO yes. at, at LHSC, and you send it to these guys, they're going to say, well, thank you, but there aren't any. Yeah. So that's, the, I, that's how I see this. As to who would stockpile them, I mean, this is this is where you get governments involved in this sort of uh, out-of-the-box thinking that this is a non-traditional uh, healthcare issue. To me, I guess, and I have no idea what this would. To me, it begs the question of how many. What would you said? Two hundred and fifty are currently maybe available in the province. What would be a right number? How how would we even go about looking at that? People may not like to hear. I like CNN though, for anybody who watches Fox or something yeah. like that. <laughs> so CNN has bring a lot of medical professionals on recently, and they're saying, okay, we've got fifty-five thousand ventilators in hospitals right now. We've got a ten thousand in a stockpile, so that's probably not a bad match with you. You get three hundred and forty million people in the U.S. versus Ontario, and it's sort of matching percentages. And they're going, this is not going to work. No. And we've seen it's it in Italy. We've seen this. It's becoming issues with resources yeah. in Italy, and I think we'd be foolish not to think it's potentially going to move this way as well. And I thought it sort of looked workable when there was the, out the outbreak started in Seattle, if I have that right, in the States. You think, okay, if it stays there, that's going to work. The, the 10,000 stockpile, it can't be more than 10,000 right now. It's just, it's on both coasts. It's on, yeah. it's everywhere. So, I, I mean, nobody's... Um, um, it's CNN, and they don't want it's, they want to have a doomsday story. But this is getting pretty scary. So yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, Where can this ventilator be built? Do you have a, a facility that you no, could oh, build yourself, don't, no. or um, oh, no. who could build it? Um, I would say any. You would ideally want somebody in a medical device factory, so you might say there's one in London, but there are several, there are all over the world people who could 
you know, you know the names of the companies who build uh, CPAP devices and ventilators and, and monitors and all that sort of stuff. The main issue with all that stuff is, uh, is having a clean work environment and sort of a thought process that this is an important thing, it's not a toy, it's not a recreational thing. And a little bit of attitude at the end that we don't ship stuff that doesn't work right. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, really it's just expansion of that to add shifts if you had to work 24 hours a day and, and bring in products from wherever they have, uh, components from wherever they have to come from. And if it was taken on, I mean everybody's heard the stories about open source software and that sort of thing. That's where somebody in South Korea says, I got factory space, I've mm -hmm. got employees and so there's potentially facilities out there that c yes. have the capability Absolutely. to build this right and now. ramp it up quickly. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's that. I don't want to say that's simple. Right. Um, and there is an aspect of this where you need. I should. I got to mention something else before I forget this quickly. But there's an aspect of this of having always people who are focused on what is being done and say, no, this would be better to do it this way, or you shouldn't do this. And that all has, it's high, would have, you know, everybody wants to see the solution to this. So, um, I would think emergency physicians more than ICU physicians, that's my thinking. I could be wrong. But oh, I forgot to mention something here, that the people who were, who were officially and totally supporting this concept from 10 years ago was the American, not society, you might know the terminology, for the emergency physicians. We have 34,000 members, and they were the ones who were either driving this 10 years ago, they were totally in support of it, and at that point there were names of people who were, they wouldn't talk to me, but they were, could stand up. So I think those are the people, and I'm just thinking if you, where you would end up if you're at home and all of a sudden you're having difficulty breathing, you're going to go to the hospital to emerge, no matter what the radio says. Yeah, true. And the guy there, the people there who are going to make the decision, hopefully there is a decision because the hospital's full, where do you go and, you know, their reality I think for an emerge physician is different from an, an anesthesiologist or an ICU specialist who always, always is comfortable in saying, we can bring in some RTs who are, you yeah. know, bring in extra RTs, we'll get the equipment from the hospital in the next city. That's not this situation. So yeah. the eMERGE physicians, I think, especially a lot of those guys that I've met have also spent time in other countries, in third world countries, and they know what it means to not have first world resources all the time. And that's what this is all about. Um, nobody knows whether it would really work or not. Can you survive on, if you need a ventilator, can you survive at all on something like this? But it, what's the choice? So, right. Yeah. Hmm. So I have two questions. Um, I guess my first question is, who needs to see this? Who, like what hands need to, and eyes need to see this besides those, the eMERGE physicians are gonna be the users essentially, some somebody has to get it to that right point. Uh, you mentioned local governments, and yeah. we know the Lynn. Have you approached them, or or is there a way for this conversation to happen at that level? Well, some um, 
I'm hoping what happened yesterday with the CBC interview exposes, oh God, I don't want to say me, <laughs> to interested people. But I tried this this morning. I was horrified to find it. If you typed in pandemic ventilator, my interview is near the top on Google. I actually typed in yeah. pandemic ventilator a few days ago, so, and your company came yeah. up, JST Limited yeah, came up. So even before the CBC that. interview, okay. there was a link to you. <laughs> so during that interview, I said, "This whatever I've done, I'm sharing with anybody who wants to hear about it. So um, I'm hoping somebody does more than one part of the world wants to hear about it and yeah. would run with it. And that's how I see this, that... What an impact that would have. That would be pretty cool if it worked, wouldn't It'd it? It'd be amazing. Yeah. So I don't think we're talking about Linz. I think we're talking about... Yeah, it's bigger. Um, further up to say uh, Ottawa's announced $1 billion available. Mm -hmm. And they say research and development. Now they're talking about vaccines and treatments. Right. This is sort of a treatment, you might say. Well, it's supportive um, treatment for sure. Yeah. yeah. And the U.S. I think is up your eight and a half billion. Now they've climbed that up a little bit higher. So... I'm going to, fingers crossed, there are smart people in those organizations who are looking at all sorts of ideas, you know, show me, show me things, but not university-based, there's no, got to be nice here, there's no time for the university, there's no time for students to participate, there are all sorts of people in the world who know how to do several aspects of making ventilators and medical devices who hopefully will take part. And see, I lean towards emergency physicians for saying, um, give them a list of optimum features and then remove them. What's the minimum What's the we minimum can do? <laughs> yeah. And talking about the grants that the government is offering for research and development, uh, do you have a patent for no. prototype? No patent, no copyright protection. I, it's really completely, you just run with this and anybody okay. I think at this uh, time is going to have to be persuaded to move ahead without worrying about financial gain from the whole thing. I mean, people need to be paid for work they do to manufacture things and the parts suppliers and all that. But um, yeah, this is not a. I yeah. think that lends well to my second question: Was are you? So you said this was developed a few years back. Yeah. Um, 2007, is that correct? You yes. started working on that? Yeah. Um, are you aware since that time, are there any competing products that have come in some sort of uh, focus that... I should be asking you that question. Because yeah. I'm out of the, the uh, clinical part of it. Well, I can tell you I have not, <laughs> heard, <laughs> I have not no. heard of any. No. So let me add to this story if we have enough time. Mm -hmm. So um, two separate things. One is that out of the blue, I was asked to participate in a competition at York University for their biomedical business program. So this is a master's degree, master's in business thing focused on biomed. <coughs> so there's a couple students I hooked up with and they were already working. I think everybody in the program was working, already working. So it was a kind of a really interesting way to do this. And um, they were quite keen on the idea of, of a ventilator for this, and we, we got third place in the competition. Excellent. First place was a group from 
a Toronto hospital with physicians on it for uh, actual treatment for cancer. Second place was a group of physicians in another Toronto hospital with a diagnostic tool for cancer. So I thought we did really well, but nothing came of that at all. And I waived that as much as I could. And I, I think partly what getting a little bit of response, I actually posted that on a Facebook page just last week mm -hmm. to say, here I am in the corner with my thing and yeah. pandemic, you know, this, uh, conversation. Yes, it's, you know, I, I thought, well, what the heck I haven't, nobody's known about this for a long time. I'm going to throw it out and see what happens. So here we are now, several years have gone by and where was I leading with that one? Um, any competing products? Or yes. So one of the things that happened in 2007 or 8 was um, I was interested in at least showing what I'd done to the Health and Human Services. But there, when they, I'm going to speculate on this because uh, there's no, no uh, record of what happened, but they, uh, my impression is they got a lot of responses from individual people, university groups, and said no. No, 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 we, you're not the right group. We want medical device manufacturers. We want people who are, so they, they know what they're talking about. Like there's enough issues with developing this whole thing. You don't want to deal with um, high school kids and university mechanical engineering students who have interesting ideas but no clue what a ventilator is. So they're, they became more and more restrictive and that's why I was not allowed to bring this to them. So in the end, it was, they would only accept proposals from a US-based ma ventilator manufacturer or an international company that had offices in the United States and who had previously marketed a ventilator. So the numbers go, boom, down to a really small number of people. So around 2011, I think, a ventilator company, uh, is it Newport? May not exist anymore. They won the contract. Within six months, there's no news. There's nothing. There's no evidence anywhere that they, anything had been accomplished. Other than I noticed that Newport was bought by one of the bigger ventilator companies in the US, and the whole thing just drifted away. Well, then in 2014, uh, Respironics or Respironics Phillips Medical was a, awarded a contract and I can't, other than I spoke with them a couple of times, they acknowledged that they were doing something and search as much as you want. I can't find any evidence that anything ever happened. So, but now it's real. Yeah, it's back and as mentioned I think we would be fooling ourselves to say that it would be the only time we'll see yes. something like this. So. So uh, we're, from where we are here, we have no idea who's doing what anywhere in the world. The right. Chinese may have, I mean, they have tremendous manufacturing capability. Maybe they have something, but they're not saying it yeah. openly. And you would think um, if Philips Medical or Draeger or somebody else was doing something, they would be, they would be promoting that, right. I would think. So they're not that I'm aware of, so, excuse me. Well, interesting. It's very interesting. To think about. 
So we need to get this this uh, product completed. I think would be the first step. That'd to be move pretty forward. cool, wouldn't it? Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, now, with that said, part of this podcast and a lot of our listenership are Fanshawe alumni, and we right. do have a big uh, student population that listens to this. You've done something a little unique with your career. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say to prospective graduates and RTs out there to um, inspire them to do something? like this, because this is off the beaten path a little bit. And potentially, John, like you're you're sitting on something that can actually save a lot of people's lives. And that'd be cool. that would be something yeah. amazing just to, you know, that, that self-gratification, that, yeah, that idea sure. you had when it got followed through was right. a world change. Well, Fanshawe, did, it did open a lot of doors for me. I would say I picked some really small doors in anesthesia research and I was going to go into electrical engineering before I went into RT, so I always had that sort of the technical background. It was a good fusion between the technical background and um, physiology and the respiratory equipment and what people were doing. Um, so it was a very good base for me and continues to be. I mean, I, I hope I'm not babbling too much and I'm using the right terminology for RTs, but. Um, you've probably heard the expression people say once a nurse always a nurse well like that fits for RTs you've been beaten over the head by a whole bunch of things that hit you really early and that's it's not forgettable so we, we <laughs> have something now uh, at uh, Fanshawe College called Innovation Village which uh-huh. is it's essentially designed uh, to have students innovate and be uh, yes. leaders in the profession and I'm wondering what we could do with our current students to maybe help move a product like this, uh, complete a product like this, and advance a product like this. Um, I'm going to take this conversation to the next level and discuss this with some of our deans of research and individuals that may be uh, more knowledgeable about this. Um, The the overall, uh, uh, well, I think you guys are aware of this, the overall the ax hanging over us is time. Yeah. And yes. that's why I have, because I've been offered this many times from many different people at fairly high levels in Ontario and London. This is neat, John. Why don't you take this to the business school at Western? Because mm-hmm. they're students. Mm-hmm. That's, and they're teaching at the business school because they're not out in the world. This is not that. And if we had more time, if I was tossing this around, it would, if it was a month ago, that's a perfect thing. Right. I've looked at that. I know Fanshawe's involved with a, is it called not verification and validation? There's some facility they set up where it was to test products. They were going to fill it with equipment and qualified people and stuff. That's a fantastic idea, fantastic resource Industry that would be useful. Yeah, I appreciate you're saying, I think yeah. at this point, it's time for action. Yeah. It's not time for the teaching and learning piece. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. There's a lot to learn, but the learning aspect is the people who have to tackle this. If people are going to tackle this, and then... Well, I think what we can help is spread the word and, and talk about the, this yes. idea. Yeah. And um, 
maybe social media is a good platform to start that. Uh, that's how you reached out to us on social media. So, yes, there's some uh, power there. A lot sure. of information, mm -hmm. and, and we're all convinced of the power of social media. There's a lot of information, a lot of false information being um, yes. circulated on social media. So let's try to do our part and be part of the solution, not the problem, and see and tell people what's out there that can help. That's why I'm here. Perfect. Excellent. I'm impressed, John. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm inspired as well. Oh, cool. Is there, just kind of wrapping up and thinking about your time, is there anything else you'd like to, to tell us about or to discuss just to um, you know, ensure that we can move this to the next level? Well, I hope at the very least I, you can invite me back and I can... I can tell you there's been some progress That's on awesome. this, and I can share with you what's going on, because okay. I think that might be, f let's say, fun, valuable for students I and RTE audience as well. Uh, beyond that, I mean, try not to catch this. It's yes. not good. Yeah. Uh, and lastly, uh, what would, let's say we've piqued somebody's interest out there. What would be the best way for them to get a hold of you? Would it be to direct them through your website? I know there was a contact and email through your website. JS sure, that would be, I think that would be good. Awesome. Okay, and I'll, I'll link that through yes. our show notes as well. So I, just last night I was investigating with, um, um, I see this terminology is always changing, an organization in London who does website development. Okay. okay. And this is what they do, and they've done this for many years. And I just, this is a friendly speculation to say, first of all, they don't know what I'm showing them. And, and it's very hard to bring your guys are RTs and your, one of your relatives says, well, what do you do? Well, how much time do you have? And so anyway, the quick uh, uh, ventilator 101 for somebody who'd never seen one before and that sort of thing. So then saying, okay, if, all, if things went well with what I would like to see happen, where could a website be set up, like separate from my website, just something that says, this is the ventilator, this is the pandemic ventilator project, Probably not totally public access to information, but that's all those are questions I asked how that could be done, that sort of thing. So that's what I'm hoping could possibly be next, and I'm waiting sometime today they will say whether that's doable and whether they could do it. And they thought they could do it. Whether you could have uh, language translation mm -hmm. built into the websites for people in different places of the world and uh, yeah, I don't know the terminology here for how some of these websites where you can you can interact with people, you can share information, and have yeah. discussions, probably not totally publicly. But so that's where I'd what I'd rather if anything's gonna happen, I'd like to see that happen fairly quickly so that I don't have to answer emails. Yeah. Um right. <laughs> yeah. Especially if the, I can't read the um uh, if they're using some, anything other than English or a little bit of French, I might be able to handle but not technical French. <laughs> well, John, thank so, you yeah, so cool. much for spending some time with us. Um, I think this is something that is right up Respiratory Therapy's alley. If one thing I know yes. about RTs, we, we get things done, we make things work, and it's not always the easiest of solutions, but that's where we often thrive. So mm. um, just to kind of remind everybody with uh, COVID-19, remember to wash your hands, uh, stop touching your face and cough into your sleeve. And if anybody's interested in further information, um, please reach out. Okay. <laughs> Thank you again, John. And, You're very welcome. Uh, we're going to sign off now. Oh, goodbye. <laughs>